This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. We're going to be reading in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Good morning. It's good to see you. How are you? Hey, a little better. Took it up a notch. So, um... I don't know if you're like me, but I feel like I'm like most red-blooded Americans in that I love movies uh, a lot. We watch movies a lot at our house, but uh, I like my movies really formulaic. All this new like trend of like these bad guys who are misunderstood and these you know good guys who have like some other nefarious thing going on like i'm tired of that like give me the good old fashioned good guys are good bad guys are bad i like the formula and you guys know the formula right like the movie starts out and everything is grand it's beautiful it's perfect the world is just great and everybody's happy and then lo and behold somebody comes on screen and they're really good at this they let you know they let you know really clearly that the guy that just walked on screen is bad news. I mean, let's play a little game. Uh, this one. Who's the bad guy? <laughs> Gonna make it any more obvious, right? Or Cruella DeVille. Like, you can't. Her name is literally Cruel Devil. Okay? We know. So she shows on screen and things get a little dark. They're like, hey, there's some bad things. Or how about one of my favorite movies when I was a kid? Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. You see... The sheriff of Nottingham, whenever this guy shows up, right, you know bad things are going to happen. And they bring in the music, right? Or how about literally any time this guy shows up on screen in a movie? <laughs> Tim Curry, right? He can't, he is always the bad guy. When he comes on screen, you know things are about to go down, right? It's going to get dark. Well, we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and it's been really good, hasn't it? It's been kind of exciting to see the early church kind of start and grow and expand. In fact, some scholars believe that at this point in the church, in Jerusalem, wrap your head around this, there could be up to 20,000 people who have become followers of Christ in Jerusalem. The church is growing. It's exciting. Adam preached in this last week, right? There was this unity and people were selling stuff and sharing and there's all the generosity and they were praying together and it was exciting times. It was like summer camp. Like, it was awesome. And then you get to chapter 5. Look at verse 1. The very first word says, but. It's kind of like that cloud on the horizon of your 4th of July picnic. And you know. It's like Tim Curry just walked on screen. Right? You know. Man, things are about to change. Things are about to get a little different. And And by the end, when you get to verse 11, we have two people who are dead. And it's it's hard to read through this text and be like, what? 
I mean, it's one of those stories where, like, if you had a, a friend or a family member come up to you and they're not a Christian, like, hey, I just started to read about reading the Bible, and you're thinking to yourself, man, I hope they didn't read the book of Acts. <laughs> it's one of those kind of stories. And you want to say to yourself, what? What's going on here? It's a little uncomfortable. There's some weightiness to it. Well, we believe that the word of God is inspired. And it's not an accident that this story is in this text. It's not an accident that we are studying this text this morning. God had a very particular reason for this event happening, for Luke recording this, because we have something we need to learn. And so we're going to dive into this. We're not going to apologize for God's word, for the tough stories, but we're going to lean in on them and learn from them. I believe the main reason that God put this in here is this, and this is our big idea for today. I want us to walk away from here as a people saying, I will honor God's church. I think that's why this text is here. When I talk about honor, what I mean is, is the idea to esteem, to give respect that is rightfully due, to give appropriate consideration and reverence. We are to do that for God's church. And to get there, there's three really big questions that I want to ask of this text. And as we answer these questions, I, I believe we'll find how the best way, the best way to honor God's church. I want to walk through this text with you, but I want to do it with the Holy Spirit's help. So let's pray real quick and ask. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for even the hard texts. We believe that this whole book was written, as Paul says, for training in righteousness, for reproof, for rebuke, for our sanctification. So we pray that you would do that even in us this morning. And that as we walk away this morning, we would know how best to honor your church. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. Okay, so let's uh, ask our first question this morning. First question of our text is this. Why, why was God's response so devastatingly lethal and swift? That's, is that the question you asked? That's, that's the question I asked when I was reading through this. Why in the world was this so devastatingly lethal and swift? I think there's two things we need to understand to be able to do this, but we kind of need to pull back a little bit. You guys know the three most important rules of Bible study are what? Context, 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 right? And that's good Bible study, right? So you need to pull back and we need to look at the context. And, and often we look at the context of like in the book itself. But sometimes we need to pull back even further and get a bigger context. Kind of like those magic eye things. You guys remember that? Like you're looking up real close and you need to, you need to look at it close and you need to slowly pull it back. Though this, we're gonna be, this time we're going to be a little less cross-eyed while we do it. Right, We're going to step back and we're going to say, big picture, what's going on here? The first thing we need to understand, big picture, is we need to understand who the church is. And better yet, maybe what the church is. I want you all to flip over to First Peter for me real quick. First Peter chapter 2. We were in this book for quite a while before we got in the book of Acts. First Peter, this is the same Peter who was standing here with Ananias and Sapphira, same guy, a couple, number of years later, writing to the church. He says this in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Here it is, verse 5. You yourselves, the church, like living stones, are being built up as a what? Say it louder. Spiritual, Spiritual house. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 would actually word it this way. You are a temple. See, the church is the covenant people of God. And what he has done is God has called us out. The Greek word is ekklesia. That's the Greek word for church. And it literally means called out once. He has called us out. And what is he doing? He is making us, what this tells us, is a holy temple, a spiritual house. See, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, God met with people, but he met them in the tabernacle and eventually the temple. 
And there was these rules and these regulations, and, and they were so strict that even the, the high priest could only enter once a year if he followed all these regulations and rules just so. And all these things were just to foreshadow what was to come because when Christ came and he died and rose again, he replaced all of that. See, all that was just pointing to him and he says, no, now this is what it was all for is for me to come and rescue you and you, you church are now God's temple. And what's happening is as Paul and Peter make logical and theological arguments of this truth, the book of Acts is actually showing us in real time this happening. I wish I could go back and show you all the little nuances in the book of Acts of how all these allusions to the Old Testament, this idea that things are changing, things such as, um, do you remember in Acts 2 when the flame came and rested on the people's heads? Do you remember that story? Where did the flame of God used to rest in the Old Testament? It come and rest in the Holy of Holies. And now it's not in the Holy of Holies anymore. It's on the people. Do you remember the spirit came and it filled the people? Where did the spirit used to fill? The temple. And now it's filling the people of God. Even little things like Adam preached last week about them coming and bringing the the, the proceeds, right, and laying them at the apostles' feet. Well, that, that's a really weird term, right? Why specifically the apostles' feet? Do you remember where the people of Israel, after they paid their tithes, where those tithes were placed? They're taken into the Holy of Holies and placed on the Ark of the Covenant. You know what the Bible calls the Ark of the Covenant? God's footstool. It's not an accident, right? Luke is trying to communicate to us something to us in the book of Acts that things have changed. The church is now where God's presence dwells. We, as the people of God, are his holy temple. We are sacred. That's the first thing we need to understand. The second is this, is we need to understand how God responds when we violate sacred, holy things. So I think there's this idea, I know there's this idea because you hear this a lot, that uh, like people who are antagonistic towards Christianity, they don't like our God because they think he's very like militant and he's angry and he just like strikes people whenever he feels like it, like all the over the Old Testament, like it's just God, just violent God killing people all the time. Do you know how rare it is for God to actually strike people down like that in the Old Testament? In scripture in general, it actually doesn't happen very often. But if you go back and study the, the text, you'll see there's a common theme when God comes in and he acts suddenly and swiftly in punishment in the Old Testament. All these stories. You know what the common theme is? When people desecrate sacred, holy things. You know some of these stories. Nahab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. The, the Hebrew says they, had, they burnt strange fire on the altar. Some weird thing that wasn't holy. It wasn't what God commanded. They did their own thing. They burn the strange fire. You know what happens? Immediately, fire comes and consumes them on the spot. They violated God's holy, sacred temple. King Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26 does something very similar. He decides, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of this whole animal sacrifice thing. I'm a king. I can do this. Uh-uh. Only one person does that. His name's the high priest. We decided to take it upon himself. You know what God does? In front of the priests, they're all watching this happening. Like, oh no, leprosy breaks out immediately, just shows up. And Uzziah is cast out of the city. See, God takes sacred, holy things seriously. How much does God care about the purity, the sacredness, the holiness of his chosen people, we, his church? He sent his only son to die for her, to cleanse her, to make her pure. See, God is serious about protecting what is his. And that helps us understand Ananias and Sapphira's fate a little bit, doesn't it? Look at Acts 5. Flip back over there. Peter says as much when he confronts Ananias in verse 4. Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? Here it is. You have not lied to man, but to God. So why was God's response 
so devastatingly lethal and swift? Because the church, as the people of God, is a sacred community. And the dwelling place of God, just like the tabernacle and temple, was sacred. See, God will not tolerate the desecration of his sacred dwelling place. And that is we, his people. So that begs the question, if God's people, we, the church, are indeed sacred, how should we respond? And I believe it is this, and this is our first way we honor God's church is we treat God's church as sacred. Because if God takes his church this seriously, shouldn't we? See, God has set her apart. He's he's called us out. He has made us holy. And one day we are going to be given as the bride of Christ, a pure, blameless, spotless bride standing at the altar for Jesus Christ. In fact, that's why You'll hear me say often throughout this message, I'm going to refer to the church as her. I'm not just assigning, you know, pronouns. Seems to be very cool these days to do that. I'm not assigning pronouns. God calls the church her. We're a bride. We treat it as sacred. It's should be something similar like what happens in the Sandlot. Y'all seen the Sandlot? This is a great film from the 90s. If you haven't, do yourself a favor and go watch it. It's great. One of my favorite movies when I was a kid. I played baseball. I wasn't very good. Still not very good, but I loved it. And uh, if you haven't seen the movie, it's about this neighborhood uh, kind of group of kids playing baseball back in the 50s. And uh, kind of the highlight, the the big, you know, climax of the story is they um, are playing ball and they lose a ball. And they don't have money to go buy a new one. So the new kid uh, to the neighborhood, he doesn't know a lot about baseball, but he really wants to fit in. And he's like, hey, guys, I got it. I got it taken care of. My stepdad has a ball. I can use his. I'll be right back. So he runs home, grabs his stepdad's baseball and brings it, throws it to the friends, and they start playing. Well, immediately, first pitch, boom, home run, goes flying over the fence, lands right in the yard of the monster. Oh, the kid just has a meltdown. He's breaking down and all his friends run over and they're like, dude, it's okay. We'll play again tomorrow. We'll get another ball. We'll ask our parents for money. You don't need, you don't need to worry about it. It happens all the time. We lose balls. He goes, you don't understand. This was my stepdad's ball. It was so important to him. I should have taken it to begin with. He had it up on the shelf and, and some girl gave it to him. I think he really liked her. She put her name on it and everything. I, I got to get it. And they're like, what are you talking about? What, some girl signed your dad's ball? What do you, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, this girl. What was her name? Her name was Baby Ruth. Well, immediately, the rest of the team has a royal meltdown. Right, And the rest of the movie is all about these boys trying to get back the Babe Ruth signed baseball that this kid lost that belonged to his stepdad. Right, They were breaking down because that Babe Ruth signed baseball was something sacred. It wasn't meant to be treated like every other baseball you just play in the neighborhood. It was meant to be treated as something sacred. But he didn't understand. So what does it look like specifically, though, for us to treat God's church as sacred, if we really mean it? There's lots of ways, I'm sure, but there's a couple in particular that I think we could do. The first is this, is we give prominence to her. We give prominence to the church. We give prominence in our calendars. It means we make it a priority to attend You don't just treat it as something else to do on our to-do list. Oh, I got my HOA meeting or uh, my kid's 4-H fair or, you know, polo club. And then at the end of that, I got my church. No, the church, you don't stop being the church when you leave this building. You are the church always and everywhere. When you're showing up to that, that your kid's ball game, when you're at the PTO meeting, when you're grocery shopping, you are the church. And it should make, be the funnel that you look at through your identity through and everything you do. And you, and you make it a priority. You say, this thing is important because we are the people of God. Adam talked last week about making it prominent in our budgets, our checkbooks, our checking accounts, the, the way we use our stuff. 
And even our own gifts and abilities, do you look at the church as the place to give of yourself? Or do you look to take from her for your own ends? I mean, that was, that was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, right? They were trying to take from the church. We're going to get into that more in a few minutes. But we make it prominent in our lives. And I think we love her. I say that because you can't love Jesus and not love what he loves. And he loves his bride. He gave his life for her. I have this song by artist Derek Webb. Um, I don't recommend listening to his newer stuff. Unfortunately, he's an apostate um, openly. But years ago, he wrote uh, an album specifically about the church. And he wrote it because he would sing songs about Jesus and people would come up to me and like, ah, I love your songs about Jesus, but I can't stand his followers. You ever hear people say that? I like Jesus, but not the church. And he, after a while, thinking through it biblically, he was like, I just, I can't stand this. This, this is not how this works. And so he wrote a song. He wrote a song from the perspective of Christ singing to people just like this. And I want to read you just part of these lyrics because I think they nail it. So again, this is, this is the perspective, running from the perspective of Christ to someone who would say, I like you, but not your church. He says, I have come with one purpose to capture for myself a bride. By my life, she is lovely. By my death, she's justified. I have always been her husband, though many lovers she has known. So with water, I will wash her and by my word alone. So when you hear the sound of the water, you will know you're not alone. I love that line because he's alluding to baptism, right? When we are baptized into the body, we are baptized into the body of Christ, into this thing that we do together. And the chorus says this, because I haven't come for only you, but for my people to pursue. You cannot care for me with no regard for her. If you love me, you will love the church. So I have questions for you. How often do you think about church? And when you do, what are your thoughts? What, what place does the people of God, we, the people of God, take in your life? Is it, is it prominent in your life or is it just there on the margins? Is it sometimes sneak in when it's convenient? Or do you value God's church as something precious to love and protect and care for? Or is it just another thing you can use along the way for your mission of self-glorification? As if, if God's church is who he says we are, then we need to treat it as such. We need to treat it as sacred. That's our first question and our first point. Let's move on to the second. If, if this is true, if God's church really is this sacred, holy thing, if we really are the temple, the dwelling place of God, us together, then what sin is so serious that God would respond this way? Right? Because we're not, like these are saved people, but they're not perfect, right? The early church wasn't perfect. There for sure was other sins going on among this community, am I right? Does that make sense? We all know that. There are people just like us, so I'm sure there were kids disobeying parents and people gossiping. But why this sin? What was so serious about it? Let's, let's walk through the facts of the story. Let's walk through it a little bit. So just a reminder, from Adam last week, we learned that people were selling their land, right? Gaining some money from the sale of their land, and they were being generous and giving it to others. There was unity going on, there was prayer, but the big thing was just this overwhelming sense of generosity. So Ananias and Sapphira, right, they look at this and they're like, hey, there's an opportunity here. And it says that they, they work together and they take the money, they sell some land that they owned, they take that money and they lay it at the apostles' feet. Now, you need to keep in mind what I said about the apostles' feet. Okay, so they lay it there. And they lay some of it, but they pocket some. 
but everybody else watching thinks that they've laid it all because that's what everybody else had been doing up to this point. So there's this perception that they're giving everything that they have to the church, but really they're pocketing some on the side. It's important to know how they did it because this wasn't just like a spur of the moment thing. It wasn't just like they got up and they're about to go lay the money down. And then Ananias was like, oh, that's right. Jacob the potter, I owed him some money. Shoot. All right, I'll, I guess I'll take some of that. I got to get, I got to pay Jacob Potter off or he's going to come after me. That's not what happened. We know that because of a, a number of words that are used in here. Look at verse two. And it says, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. That word knowledge is super interesting. It's only used a handful of times in all of scripture. Um, the one particular use that I find really fascinating and telling is in Leviticus 5.1. This is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In Leviticus 5.1, it says, If anyone sins and that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, so it's been, there's been this call to testify for a sin, and he is a witness to that sin, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, there's that word, come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. That word know is the other, uh, other way it's translated is conscious. And it's not like Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder conscience. It's I am knowledgeable about what's going on and I am in agreement with what's going on. She was complicit. Verse 4, when Peter confronts Ananias, he says, why have you contrived this deed in your heart? He contrived it. He thought it up. He plotted it out. And in verse 9, when he confronts Sapphira, he says, why have you agreed together? See, this was a scheme. They spent time formulating, how are we going to do this? I'm going to come in first. I'll present the money. Then you can come in later. They won't know because we're split up. Maybe they won't see it, right? There's, there is a plotting going on. And why did they do it? What did they want? I think it's pretty obvious. They want to be seen as generous and great. They wanted to be admired. They wanted the glory that came as they watched all the other people bring their all their money and everybody was like, oh, wow, look at how wonderful these people are. They're so spiritual. And they're like, man, that, that looks good. I want to be seen that way, but I, I don't want to give all my money. I want to be seen a certain way, but I want to not have to do what's required to be seen that way. See, the sin was not the keeping money for themselves. Peter says as much in Acts 5.4. Look at this. This is his argument. Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? What he's saying is, this was your money. You could do what you wanted with it. It was your land. You could have kept it. You could sell it. It's your money. You can take as much as you want. Give as much as you want. Nobody is compelling you to do any of this. He's saying that's not the problem. The problem was lying to the Holy Spirit, lying to God. And they weren't just lying about their actions. What they were lying about was their motives. See, they were presenting themselves as having character that it was the exact opposite of what it actually was. You know what we call that? Hypocrisy. See, they looked kind selfless, generous, thinking of others, when literally it was the exact opposite. They were selfish, self-centered, deceitful people, using the people of God to bolster their own self-worth and status for their own glory. So God struck them dead. They were lying hypocrites to God himself. That's a serious sin. So what do we do? I think the, the point is pretty obvious. Because in this, when God struck them dead, you know what he was doing? He was protecting his church. 
He's protecting his church from impurity, from evil, from wickedness, from this idea that church is about me. And so how should we respond? We should protect God's church against his enemies. Both enemies within the community and enemies, the enemy with, that looks us in the mirror every single morning. Because Satan is still looking to attack Right? That's what, that's what happened here. Peter ascribed this to who it should have been ascribed to. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? This is, I'm not saying that Ananias' fire were possessed by Satan. What I'm saying is in their desire to deceive, they were complicit with the enemy. Because Satan is the father of lies. And so their attempt to deceive was the partnership He's still active. He's still seeking to hurt the church. Hypocrisy is real, and there really are enemies of God. And some are intentional, right? You guys know, probably have recently heard about the scandal of Ravi Zacharias, who is intentionally using the church for his own wicked ends. But so many Men used, un, or used unintentionally by the enemy. We've heard stories of evangelical leaders for five, ten years now that keep falling, who are unwittingly being used by the enemy to hurt the church of God because they're so desirous and lustful after their own glory, their own power, their own fame. But if we're honest, we all have that same potential in our own hearts. We all desire to be admired for our own works, for our good deeds, and it's always there lurking on the edge. Did you notice that heart was mentioned twice in this passage? Because passage? our hearts are deceitfully wicked. And if we aren't careful, man, that plotting is so easy to do. How can I work out this situation so they see how good I am. I really want them to know how good of, a, good of a servant I am, how loving I am, and we twist it for our own ends. So how do we protect ourselves then? And there are a few ways we can do that. First is, is we have to remember that it's actually a command to do so. Throughout the New Testament, you see command after command that we are, we are to take up arms and be ready to defend ourselves against the enemy. Our enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we need to put on the full armor of God because he is coming after us. It doesn't happen on accident. We have to actively pursue protecting ourselves. We do this by speaking the truth. We confront lies and the father lies by speaking the truth. We aren't unashamed of the truth here at Redemption. You should not be unashamed of the truth. That is how you fight back. In fact, that defines the people of God. In Zechariah 8, 16, God says, talking about what the people of God should be like, he says this, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render it in your gates, judgments that are true, and make for peace. We protect ourselves by speaking the truth. We also guard our own hearts. How often do you repent of sin? Are you looking for those things in your heart that are pursuing things other than the Lord? Are you in a small group? Do you have people around you who hold you accountable who can say, hey, you said something last week that is way different than what you just said this week. What's going on? That are looking out for you. Because we don't even know our own selves well. We unashamedly run the hypocrites out. We do this through church discipline. We practice discipline here at Redemption. We're not ashamed of it. Because it's good for our church and it's good for the person we're disciplining. And really... We try to create an environment that is so full of truth and transparency that if you're a hypocrite here, you're going to be very uncomfortable. <laughs> because right, what does the light do? Light shines in the darkness and it pushes it away. So the more we speak truth, the more we're honest and transparent and real, the less places there are for hypo- is, there are less places there is for hypocrisy to hide. 
So are you actively seeking to protect God's church from sin? Do you take the sin in your own life seriously? Do you take it seriously in others? Do you call others to repent and then remind them that they can trust in God's grace for forgiveness? Or do you regularly overlook it? What are you doing to actively guard your own heart? We need to protect God's church from his enemies because they are there. The last question that I want to ask of this text is this. What is the right way to respond to a story like this? What is the right way to respond to a story like this? Let's summarize the story where we are one more time. So Ananias lies, right? Peter calls him out for lying to the Holy Spirit, and he's stricken dead. And young men come, and they carry him off, and they they bury him right away. The people who heard what had happened, they were greatly afraid. And, And three hours later, his wife comes in. And three hours is a pretty good amount of time for Ananias to get buried, for all the hustle and bustle to kind of settle. Um, in the ancient Near East, people were buried the same day they died. There was no embalming going on. So they took him, and they had enough time. Three hours was plenty of time to get him into a tomb, seal it up. Everybody had been dispersed. The commotion is gone. This fire has no clue what happened. She's going on with the plan, just like they talked about. So she walks in. Peter confronts her. She's guilty. She's killed on the spot. The people who heard what happened were greatly afraid. Because the fear of the Lord, listen church, the fear of the Lord is the appropriate response to God's holy, righteous judgment. See, this is what the people saw and realized what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They saw his holy judgment. Because Ananias and Sapphira weren't fearing the Lord, were they? In fact, Peter says this. He says in verse 9, How is it you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. How is it you have agreed together to test the spirit? She wasn't fearing him. She was willing to test him. Trying to figure out, okay, is God really going to strike me dead? Can I really get away with this? That's not the behavior of someone who fears the Lord. We need to fear the God of the church. That's the appropriate response. Now, I want to clear a little bit up of what I mean by fear of the Lord. There's, I think there's a lot of confusion about what the fear of the Lord is and what it isn't. Um, I'm going to try to sum up what an entire book's worth of the teaching on the fear of the Lord. So if you, um, I recommend this book. It's called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves. If you've read Gentle and Lowly, uh, you will like this book. So I recommend, if you haven't read Gentle and Lowly, go read that. Uh, read it again, and then read this book, Rejoice in Trouble. It's a fabulous book, Michael Reeves. But Michael Reeves in this book helps us understand the difference between good fear and bad fear, because you know in Scripture there's we're commanded to do both, right? We're commanded to not fear, and we're commanded to fear. That can be really confusing. Which one are we supposed to do? Well, there's a difference, Let me explain what fear is not first. Fear is not awe. A lot of people say fear is awe. Now, there's an element of awe to fear, but it's bigger than that, right? You can go stand at the Grand Canyon and be in awe, but does looking at the Grand Canyon make you fall on your face and quake? Maybe some people, probably most of us, it doesn't, right? So it's bigger than awe. But it's not being scared, though there are elements of being a little bit, some elements of being scared, because scared people run away and hide and try to protect themselves, right? I, people weren't doing that in this text. How do I know? Check this out. Go to verse 14. It's three verses later. Listen, listen to what it says. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. More than ever. So we're at 20,000. Two people are stricken dead, and the church grows. How about that for a church growth plan? The church is growing, so it can't be scared. Scared people run away. The word for fear in both the commands throughout Scripture is the same word. 
And the reason it's the same word is because the root of that word fear is talking about a physical reaction, a, a trembling, a quaking. So bad fear is a trembling and quaking because you think God's an untrustworthy tyrant full of uncontrollable fear or fury. You never know what he's going to do. In fact, this is the fear that Muslims have of Allah. They don't know where they stand with him, so they're constantly afraid because if I do something wrong, he's going to strike me dead. That's not the fear of God in the Bible. Michael Reeves explains it this way. He said, the common feature of good and bad fear is trembling. That's the common feature. It shows us that the fear of God is no mild-mannered, reserved, or limp thing. This is good fear. It is a, it is a startling, physical, overpowering reaction. And so respect and reverence are simply too weak and great to stand in as synonymous for the fear of God. It's an ecstasy of love and joy. The sense is how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent good and true God is and that therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. See, in our text, what people saw was the magnificent truth about the goodness and purity of their God. They saw God who was willing to step in and say, sin is wicked and I'm going to protect my people. And they trembled at that kind of power and majesty and goodness. And they ran to it. It's almost like a bridegroom. Scott stood here on his wedding day. I'm not sure if this happened. Knowing Scott, it may have, right? But you've seen these on America's Funniest Home Videos. Kids, that was an old television show back in the 90s. Pretty good. Uh, it's like YouTube of today. But the guy's standing here, and the bride comes around the corner, and so often, what do we see happen? He gets weak need, and some guys even pass out. That's good fear. They were overwhelmed at the sight of the beauty of their bride. That's what good fear does. And these, and these people saw the goodness of God and his willingness to fight for the protection and purity of his holy people. So what does it look like to fear the Lord? As my dad would say, what, is it, what does this look like with Nikes on it? I think there's two particular ways. First is we need to know who he really is. We need to submit to that. And I, I mean both the good parts and those parts that you're scared of. Those parts that you're afraid to really believe. Because I think we tend to pendulum swing one of two directions. Maybe you're on one side and you imagine our God to be too safe. What I mean by that is you imagine that there's a God who doesn't judge sin. He would never send people to hell. And he would never demand you change your behavior or give up the thing you love or do something you don't want to do. That God, you're like, ah, I don't want to, I don't want to believe in that God. You need to correct your vision of God or you're not going to fear him properly. But maybe you pendulum swing the other side and, and you imagine God is too angry and distant. In your mind, God is a God who can never forgive you of your sin who would never draw near to you, who would never provide the very sacrifice required to pay for your sin and rebellion, the God who would never chase you down, tackle you to the ground and say, you are mine, I love you, and save you from your sin. If you don't believe in that God, you need to correct it because you aren't going to fear him properly. You need to get in the word and see clearly who he is and understand that God is good. God is powerful. And the second way we do this is we understand who we are. And I believe that the more we clearly understand who God is, the more we look at him, the more we actually will understand who we are. I was talking about this with my wife this week and um, I'm still going to quote her. She said something really profound, and I said, write that down, because I want to use that. So I did. Catherine said this to me. She said, when we properly see who God is, when we rightly understand his character, how we see ourselves will fall into place. For example, when we can identify how perfect he is in executing justice, how it's wrapped up in purity and holiness, 
we see how selfish and small or vengeful our definition of justice can be. We need to fear the God of the church. Because here the church call church. I'm calling us, this text is calling us to honor God's church. And this is a call to something very serious. We need to take church seriously. We are the bride of Christ, and it is seriously good. Because we are his people. He sent his only son to die to rescue us, to make his his own. And Revelation 21 says that one day he will come and dwell with us. And it says he will be our God and we will be his people. And we must fight to treat this thing we do, this thing called church that makes it, that's uncomfortable sometimes. And you rub shoulders with people that annoy you. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And he will not let sin or evil get in the way of purifying his bride. And we have a choice. But we treat it as such. I think appropriate response to something like this is to reflect on the idea of community, of togetherness, of the body of Christ. I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians 11. Now, remember when I said there was only a handful of places where God strikes people dead for dishonoring the body, for dishonoring sacred things. And one of those is in 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, you see instructions about the Lord's Supper. And they were misusing the Lord's Supper. There were people that were coming and and they were feasting and filling their stomachs and having a grand old time while other people were coming and they were left with nothing to eat. They were misusing the community of God. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And later he talks that there are those who have fallen asleep for doing such a thing. But communion is a time for us to gather together as a body to reflect to reflect on what the Lord has done for us and and sending his son, shedding his blood, breaking his body so we can participate in this new covenant, this new body, this new thing that God is doing where we are his dwelling place. But we need to do it in a way that's not unworthy. So we're going to take communion now. And as we proceed, I want you to take a couple minutes. I want you to take some time to think, have I treated this thing called the church in an unworthy manner. On a very practical level, that means have I caused disunity? Are there sins in my heart that I've committed against somebody else? Are there sins in my heart I've committed against the Lord? And there's a call here to go to the cross to say, God, I recognize this sin. I believe your son died for that and I repent. I accept your forgiveness because grace is there. So take a few moments, pray to, get, pray to yourself, ask for forgiveness, and then we'll take communion together.
Father, this morning we are thankful for the broken body and the spilled blood of Christ who was done to purify us, his bride, make us clean, to make us holy so we could have a relationship with you. God, and we confess this morning that even this week we did things that desecrated your holy church that offended you that were not in line with your word but that is the very reason Christ came we thank you for forgiveness that's available at the cross if we just need to ask so we ask this morning again remind us that we are loved and we are forgiven and as we take of this bread as we drink that we would know we are loved. Name your son. Amen. If you have your communion cup in front of you, if you never used these before, if you push down on the tab in the front first, it'll separate for you and you can peel off a top thin layer where you will find the wafer. And then obviously the juice is below it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us take and eat together. Paul goes on to write in verse 25, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. Verse 26 says, for often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. God, again, we thank you. We thank you for the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who who is the one who has saved us, who has redeemed us, and we can't wait to see him face to face. So even as we go this week, God, help us to take this thing, your church, seriously. And know that we are part of it, that we are part of something bigger. We are part of the biggest thing. And may we live our lives for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, church. You are loved.